Lord God, we pray now that the words of my mouth and our thoughts and meditations and reflections in these next few minutes would be found acceptable in your sight, for you are our only rock and our eternal salvation. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. You probably noticed this morning as the scriptures were just read that each one is addressed to people who are identified as rich. And I would think of them as being the one percenters, and so it wouldn't include me at all. Nevertheless, I'm going to be arguing this morning that actually this is referring to all of us who has achieved any level of lifestyle with at least some measure of financial security and comfort, ease, and leisure. In our Old Testament text, the prophet Amos addressed his comments to verse 1, those who are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure on the mountain. Verse 4, to those who lie on beds of ivory, eat lambs from the flock. Verse 5, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp. In our New Testament reading, St. Paul, the apostle, writes to his protege, the young pastor Timothy, and gives specific instruction, you probably noticed in verse 17, to the rich in this present age. And our gospel reading was a story told by Jesus about, verse 19, a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day, contrasting him with, in the next verse, a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. So each of these texts, to some extent, is speaking to people who the authors identify as rich. And we need to notice as well that each text has a sense of warning. There's something about the dangers of riches or financial security and comfort. Woe, the prophet Amos says, and then repeats it, woe again. And if you're not very familiar with the scriptures, I can give you a clue for reading in the prophetic um, passages of scripture in the Old Testament. When the Hebrew prophets used the word woe, they meant it, okay? They really meant it. In other words, what Amos is saying here, ignore my proclamation from God and disaster of some sort is bound to follow. But wait a minute. Most of us would say, or at least I say as I read these passages, how can riches, a measure of riches, financial security and comfort possibly be a problem? They aren't a problem. The problem is poverty. It's the other end of the spectrum. It's a lack of those things. Financial security and comfort are the solution, not the problem. Poverty, the artist Van Gogh wrote to his brother Theo in 1880 in a letter, poverty prevents good minds from succeeding. And he should know. His paintings that are worth millions now hanging in museums didn't sell during his lifetime. And after years of grinding poverty and depression, Van Gogh committed suicide at the age of 37. But we must be clear. I want to be clear this morning. Poverty is truly a problem. It's a huge problem, one that should concern us as individuals and as the church, and that must never be minimized. 
But poverty isn't our topic this morning. Riches is because of these texts. Now, this notion that financial security and ease is never a problem, it comes from our, the consumerist ideology of our culture, not from the scriptures. The Bible asserts something quite different, and our texts this morning call this assumption, this cultural assumption that we've absorbed from the modern world into serious question. Now, to help us make sense of this, let's do a thought experiment, okay? Now, just come with me on this, okay? It's a thought experiment. You're at a small group meeting. You call them life groups here, I think? You call them life groups? Okay. You're at a life group meeting, okay? And the time has come when you pray for one another, and your leader asks if anyone has any prayer requests. And one couple say, yes, they do. They have a request. And before they begin to say what, say what it is, one of them begins to cry quietly. It's a real problem. And the other explains, we're in financial trouble. We're in real financial trouble. Our income changed drastically this month, and we're a bit scared about how things are going to work out. We really need your prayers and friendship. We really need them. Now, here's the thought experiment. What do you think they will say next? What do you think they'll say next? Now, I don't know about you, but I'd expect them to say something like this. The company I worked for is streamlining to cut costs, and my job was determined to be redundant, and they just let me go. Just boom. My last paycheck is this month, so we're okay until the 30th, but we won't have enough to pay our mortgage next month. We're in financial trouble. We're scared. I don't, we don't know what we're going to do. We really need your prayers and your friendship. That's what I'd expect them to say. But now let's turn things around and assume a biblical rather than merely a consumerist perspective. Imagine that there is something else they could have said. Imagine them saying something like this instead. Two weeks ago, I was given a huge promotion out of the blue. Boom. And with it, a massive increase in pay. The trouble is, is that what we've discovered about ourselves is really upsetting. We used to be contented with life. It's gone. We've loved our house. We've loved it. And now it just feels dingy. Our kitchen appliances all work, but they're different colors. Can you believe that? We don't even know what color dish towels to get to match the three colors. <laughs> My new rate of pay doesn't even kick in for six more months, but we've already bought a whole bunch of stuff, including new kitchen appliances in matching colors. And then in our family devotions, we read in Mark where Jesus asks, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? We never imagined so much envy and covetousness and discontent was lurking in our hearts. It's like my rays suddenly exposed the rot in our souls. And we don't like what we see. We're in financial trouble. And we're scared. We started to gain the world and lose our souls. We really need your prayers and your friendship.
Do you see the difference? As believers, we need to have a Christian mind where our assumptions and values and presuppositions are shaped by the truth of God's word. The consumerism of our world says poverty is the problem, financial security is the solution, and comfort is the goal of life. A Christian perspective insists in contrast that maturity, not comfort, is the goal of life. And that financial security and ease brings dangers that must be faced with courage and authenticity. In his book, Love and Living, the mystic and monk scholar Thomas Merton wrote this. If I had a message to my contemporaries, it is surely this. Be anything you like. Be madmen, drunks, and jokers of every form and shape, but at all costs avoid one thing, success. If you're too obsessed with success, you will forget to live. If you have lived, learned only how to be a success, your life has probably been wasted. End of quote. Pretty strong. But I suspect that Merton and Amos would have really liked each other. <laughs> See, our three scriptures are full of meaning. They weave together a whole series of themes and metaphors and values and ideas that are fascinating. I can't go into it all, so what I'd like to do, look, do is look at one danger that each text says accompanies financial security and comfort. And the dangers are these. In Amos, there's the danger of distraction. In Timothy, there's the danger of autonomy. And three, in Luke, there's the danger of not listening. Distraction, autonomy, and not listening. Uh, Let me look at each one very briefly. From Amos, first of all, the danger of distraction. Now, Amos lived around 760 B.C., He was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, who wrote a much longer book in the Old Testament, and who was apparently acquainted with Amos' writings. Amos was from the southern kingdom of Judah, from a town about five miles from Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. But his prophetic ministry was primarily in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he tells us he was not a professional prophet, when God called him. He was a farmer. He was a shepherd who also maintained sycamore fig trees. And Amos spoke during a time of relative peace and prosperity in Israel, but he argued that a lifestyle of ease had lulled God's people into spiritual lethargy. Those who had exploited those who had less, and since their wealth increased, the rich saw no reason to treat their workers differently. People still worshipped regularly at the temple. There were priests and sacrifices and all of that. But you see, God desired faithfulness in life, not just religious ritual. Okay. And Amos begins his warning right away in verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountains of Samaria. He goes on in the next couple of verses to mention the capital cities of the neighboring nations, places the people thought were not nearly so glorious or secure as their own capital city and their own nation. Scholars tell us that there is a hint of sarcasm in the language that Amos employs. 
They feel so secure, he says in verse 3, that they dismiss the notion of God's judgment and have trained their imaginations to see economic violence as a legitimate way to do business. Woe, Amos says again in verses 4 and 5, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. Now, I admit this could seem like Amos is something of a curmudgeon, okay? Sniping about music as idle songs, taking a pot shot at David, who was revered as a singer and a composer of sacred psalms. I mean, the scriptures describe David in 2 Samuel chapter 23 as, quote, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And Amos here is just, you're like, David. Now, sweet psalmist of Israel, that's pretty high praise for David. On the other hand, David was the one who wrote that. Okay? So, we should ask, okay, was this really true? And from what we can tell from the financial, uh, from the historical record, it was. He was widely revered and known as the sweet psalmist of Israel. He was seen as God's anointed one and a poet who gave voice to the deepest yearnings of God's people. Amos is not being dismissive of David, but warning the people that feeling financially secure and comfortable, that they are not like the great psalmist, but merely missing the point of life itself. And Amos gets to the heart of his concern in verses 5 and 6. Woe to those who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. The sharp contrast here, you see, is found in the phrase, but are not grieved. That's what Amos is concerned about. They have been distracted from the things that matter most, and because of that, they may remain rich and comfortable, but God will see to it that they'll never flourish fully as persons. We may not consider ourselves to be rich, but we certainly should pay attention to the danger of distraction Have you noticed any in your life? Mine are full. Mine is full. Sometimes I think distractions make up the predominant part of our modern society. A relentless news cycle, social media, email, video images, advertising, the pressure to stay informed, sports, and of course our devices, our technology. Now, just as there is nothing wrong with a glass of wine, and composing a song like David did. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. Unless, that is, they distract us from from what matters most in life. This much, however, Amos makes clear. If we truly want to flourish as persons the way God intended, we will take the danger of distraction with the seriousness that it deserves. As I've tried to live with this text over the last week, I've kept wondering if I take my distractions seriously enough. And two, from Timothy, there's the danger of autonomy. 
Now, our Timothy text is from what's called a pastoral epistle, meaning it was a letter written to a young pastor, Timothy, from his mentor, the Apostle Paul. He's nearing the end of his letter, and so St. Paul charges Timothy to be disciplined and faithful, embracing virtue and a lifestyle marked by truth and righteousness, so that he not only speaks about the Lord Christ in his preaching and teaching, but also demonstrates Christ's presence and character in how he lives. After all, St. Paul says in verse 15, The Lord Christ is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You almost get the feel that Paul was just just sort of swept away by his sense of adoration and worship as he wrote this. And he had to finally put in the word amen just to bring it to an end and get on with the rest. This means that all that St. Paul is discussing here gets to the very nature and heart of life and reality and must never be seen as peripheral or secondary. Ordinary life, in other words, is to be lived in light of this great truth of who Christ is or it will forever reside in the shadows where we will miss out on God's great purpose to us when he made us in his image. And then St. Paul turns his attention to riches. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty on riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The apostle goes on to say that the rich should be grateful and generous and that in so doing they will be transforming temporary passing treasure for eternal unchanging treasure in the presence of God. And the reason... Look at at the end of verse 19. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Once again, what's really at stake here is human flourishing. And from a Christian or a biblical perspective, financial security can deflect us from experiencing and embracing it. And when we parse out St. Paul's argument in this text, it becomes clear that the danger he sees is the danger of autonomy, the self-confidence that means we really have no reason to actively trust God for what we need because we've got it under control. Look at verse 17 again. As for the rich of this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. But... Let's be honest, okay? As middle-class Americans, just how are we supposed to do that? Most of us work for companies. We have contracts. And so we know where our next paycheck is coming from. Yes, okay, we can trust God that the the global economy won't implode. But most of us probably don't stay up at night worrying about that a great deal. For many of us, trusting God is limited to our eternal salvation, which is, of course, very important. But it's largely an intangible future hope that will only come to fruition after we die. I mean, let's face it, saying that I trust God for my eternal salvation, that's pretty easy, okay? But to really wrestle with what does it mean to trust God for my financial security, it's a little bit more difficult. What would it mean for us this week not to trust the American economy, not to trust the company we work for, not to trust the employment contract we've signed, but to 
honestly believe that these things in reality are actually uncertain and instead to actively place our trust and hope in God who provides all that we need to truly flourish. I can hear those words. I can say that I believe them and that I want to follow them. But to be perfectly honest with you, I'm not always certain how to actually put it into practice. The scriptures here are calling us to a point of tension. I don't consider myself rich, but I find this apostolic construction to be difficult. How do I, as a middle-class American in a free market economy, actually trust God and nothing else to provide what I need? How do I do that without it being pious nonsense, the sort of hypocrisy that so many outside the church claim that our faith requires us to adopt? Yeah, you say you trust God for your income. But you're showing up at work early every day, aren't you? Yeah. Everything in my world pushes me towards a self-satisfied, confident autonomy. Everything in my faith pushes me to a radical life of trust in the one who never changes, even though recessions come and go, companies launch and fold, and paychecks and savings accounts are actually far less secure than the financial advertisements during football games make them appear. I wonder how I can trust God this week instead of the economy for my financial security. So, what we have so far in these texts is the prophet Amos arguing there's a danger of being distracted and so missing the things that matter most. St. Paul points out the danger of autonomy where we subtly trust something other than God. And in both cases, we may remain financially secure and comfortable, but will not fully flourish as persons. And finally, from Luke, we learn about the danger of not listening. Now, our gospel text in Luke is a story told by Jesus. There were two men, Jesus said. One was rich and ate extremely well, and verse 19, was clothed in purple and fine linen. The other, who was named Lazarus, was poor and covered with sores and spent his days begging from passers-by outside the rich man's front gate. The dogs that wandered the streets and the alleys around the rich man's house would lick Lazarus's weeping sores. And then both died. The rich man, Jesus said, discovered himself in a place of torment and could see over a vast chasm Lazarus on the, uh, at the side of Abraham in comfort at last. The rich man begged Abraham to send Lazarus with a sip of water to quench his thirst, but Abraham said it was too late for that. Now, look at verse 27, because this is the key point, it seems to me. Then I beg you, Father Abraham, the rich man said, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. Let them hear them, sorry. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The rich man was convinced his siblings needed more than the scriptures as a warning to live right because, of course, he had had the scriptures and it hadn't done him any good. He hadn't listened. And neither, he feared, would his brothers 
When we feel financially secure and comfortable, Jesus is saying, there is a danger we will not listen to the word of God. And truth be told, I can think of lots of reasons why I wouldn't truly listen to texts like the ones we're considering this morning. First of all, I'm not really rich. I've already mentioned that. Okay, I'll mention it one more time, okay? I'm not really rich. These texts apply to the 1%, people like Melinda and Bill Gates. They should read this every day, okay? (laughs) Warren Buffett, twice a day. But they're not really for me. All these texts also were written to people living in a primitive agrarian society. I live in a modern post-industrial one, so these concerns are for that day. I mean, couches of ivory doesn't even sound comfortable to me. I'm not interested. I'm also very busy, and I don't have time to worry about the deeper meaning of this story. So what I take away from it is the need to be grateful to God that I'm saved like Lazarus was from the place of torment, and that's good enough for me from this text. Also, modern society is based on the free market, and the invisible hand ultimately keeps things fair, so the rules have changed so much since Jesus lived that his teaching really doesn't apply all that much to economics and personal finance. And a lot of us just do it by default in terms of not listening. Life's so difficult, we simply concentrate on more comforting texts. You can even look up on the internet, you can Google comforting Bible verses, and you can get a whole bunch of them, and you can spend the next year just reading them. And so it goes. Do you see the point? It's easy to not listen. What Jesus claims here in this story is radical. The danger of being comfortable enough in life that I not listen to God's word is so pernicious that even if someone was bodily resurrected, I still wouldn't listen. Somehow resistance to hear scripture is rooted so deeply in my fallen heart that not even a miracle can shake me loose from it. So here's how I would sum things up this morning. If you're struggling with poverty or underemployment or a lack in what you need, that's significant and that's real. It's a problem that we as your sisters and brothers must take seriously. It isn't enough that we pray for you. We must come alongside and help practically and even at cost. My not addressing that this morning is not because it's insignificant, but because the text addressed another issue. And I want to make that very clear. And if we have any measure at all of financial security and have achieved any relative level of comfort, we must not be dismissive of such good things. Instead, we can be grateful and generous. But we can also determine never for a moment to swallow the lie that our culture tells us when it assumes there are no dangers involved in that. Our scriptures insist that there are at least three The danger of being distracted from the things that matter most. The danger of autonomy, believing our self-sufficiency and the free market will provide all we need rather than cultivating an active trust in God. And third, the danger of being so contented and busy 
that we fail to truly listen to the revelation of God to hear what it says about flourishing as a person made in his image. So believe it or not, it turns out it actually is possible to gain the world and lose our soul. And if there ever was a worse bargain possible in the history of humankind, I can't imagine what it would be. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.